Ciao ragazzi! This is Katie Portanova, and you're listening to Florence and Me. I'm a lover of stories and all things Italian, and I'm going to bring you all that in this podcast. My intention is to inspire you to step out of your comfort zone and explore life and travel the world. Join me as I tell you my story and many others about Italy and my love, Florence. Andiamo! Thank hello, you. Julia. Welcome back. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everybody, to Florence and Me. We are back. Um, we are talking about wine doors or buchette, buchette, or finestrini. There's a few other names for them that I found. <laughs> There's a lot of names. Um, so yeah, I uh, I dove deep into this part of history, mostly in Florence. It started, but I'm sure there's other places around Italy that have these. Um, but yeah, what did you think about the history of this before we even get started? Um, I found it uh, I found it quite fascinating, um, and also realized where Tuscany got a lot of its. Uh, famous wineries from uh, there's a bit of information there that I didn't realize and I thought it was interesting the kind of the role that it played during the the plague <laughs> um, so yeah, fascinating what did you think I I couldn't believe how many ways people got away with um, selling it tax-free there were there were before the Grand Duke in one of the stories I read that he put a tax on it like he just let everybody just kind of sell it wherever they could, which I'm like shit. Like if I was there, like I'd be hitting every door <laughs> as quickly as possible. Um, so, <laughs> I, I mean it's 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 quite interesting. I um. I kind of went back and forth in my in my research, um, but let's. I, I I thought let's start with the name that they're called is um, Buchette. Yeah. Okay. So, in Italian, un buco or una yeah un buco is un buco. Yeah. Um, basically a hole in the wall is what I'm is is how I found it to be translated. They've also called it finestrini, which is little windows. Yeah. Um and uh interestingly as the as the years went on there were there were more um there were more of these doors, but they were they would call them false doors. And why is that? Because they would be selling oil like out of them. But oil <laughs> lanterns like in the streets so it became like I, I I didn't dive too far into that but I was like oh quite interesting um yeah so I uh that's very cool I, I, I hit a few different like notes on how they were called um 
Bulke was also considered, is also described as the, the sellers. That's mm. called them Bukete. Uh, or Bukete. Um, yeah, sellers. And they're also, they became known as also wine shops, wine bars, and then eateries in the early 20th century. So there's like a restaurant in, in Florence, which is by your old apartment, I think. Um, via the Trebio, uh, yeah. uh, Bucalani. Yeah, I read about them. Yeah, as well. Yeah, <laughs> so I so there's like I don't, I always thought when I thought of Bucete I thought of holes because I think of buco 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 hole. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so they've also been called like the tabernacles of wine. Um, there's all these different names for them, but. Anyway, so let's start by how do you spot them? What what did you come up with? Like, how do you find them on the streets in Florence, for example? Um, to be honest, I don't really. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how one spots them, mm-hmm. but <laughs> but I always came. If you're looking at the buildings, you will certainly see it because it seems like an odd an odd kind of opening to have yeah and it's always street level you know you're not going to see that kind of opening and as far as I remember okay. uh, from my reading they have often they have some writing on the top or they used to have writing on the top to say uh-huh. some kind of indication yeah. as to this being you know where wine is sold mm-hmm. is is that correct well Part of it, yes, but this is what I found. So yes, they're all of the they're they're shaped in these arched openings. So they are yeah. carved in. Um, usually they use the the stone, the pietra serena, or some type mm. of sand sandstone. I think is pietra serena, um, and some other type of stone to create this arch. Okay, so they're all different shapes and sizes. They all have different. They could be rounded, they could be pointed arch, they have all these different types of arches. Um, but yes, you find them on the ground floor of the bigger palazzis or the palazzos. Um, but not all of them are are of street level, meaning wow. of like eye level. Some of them are actually um there's like a there's benches where were made around some of the palazzos that have a hidden door to the cellar. Oh, okay. Like people could knock on that door. It's not a it's not a tiny door like like the wine doors, but they're actual um I'll show you in my I saw this but I'm like, oh my god, I didn't even think about this. But they're like um now obviously you can't like get into them, but uh, they like like this picture here, see how there's like a cutout of <laughs> yeah so that goes down into the shadow so what i found out about this which was very interesting is like if they were selling out of that type of door which is ground like on the ground like people would have to get down on the ground and then the person selling it would have to climb up a ladder and then hand them the flask from the ground from the seller itself yeah that's pretty cool so it's like straight from the cantina instead yeah. of having a little window. Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they're not. And the, the other thing I found is that they're not always in, um, they're on the ground floor, but sometimes they were in the door, like the two um, big doors of these palaces. Like you could see oh, the yeah, then... of it, but sometimes they, and then for a while they stopped making them like that because if it was the stable, they'd have to open the doors for the animals so they couldn't sell wine because they would have the animals like either come in or come out or um so that's why they decided to move the doors on the facade away from the main door so like the one that's the famous one that i have a picture of um near Ana via Belladonna, mm. um where it says on the top like ben, 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 bendita divino or whatever it says like that one's like offset from the main door wherever the main door was because i never those types of doors the wine doors that are offset from the main door like you don't really know what family owned that one to be honest yeah maybe that's then yes um but yeah so they, <laughs> they moved it over so like then somebody literally would sit there all day long or at the hours of the like you said you had the you saw the plaques some some of them still have the plaques above but not all of them that say the days and times that they're open mm. um, but somebody would sit there in those times and just like you would knock on the door because there was like all the doors had like these little like um knockers <laughs> yeah like the knockers yeah and then there's a wooden door that the person on the other side selling the wine opens and then pushes the other door open from the from the inside yeah. the outside it's like really cool i don't know and um yeah that's really awesome it's really a cool concept too because as so what what did you find about like the you know the selling of the wine what what kinds of things did you think did you um read about like when did they start like whatever whatever story you have you don't have to go in um so one of the things that i found interesting about the wine doors um or the wine windows you know the bouquette de vino of was how they started and as far as I understood, they started because at the time, wealthy the wealthy people of Florence kind of lost their money and they needed a way to make become rich again. So they invested in agricultural land and started selling wine because they figured, oh, you know, people have been buying wine ever since. So probably good investment. Yeah. And so that was the essentially the wealthy population that was selling wine to the common folk mm -hmm. and that's how they kind of became rich again and even to this day you still have the Antinori, uh, Frescobaldi, um, what was the other one, Ricasoli, yeah. they're still vineyards uh -huh. that are very famous today they have restaurants and all of that. Sure. Yeah. So did you find that as well? I did, I found out that why they they invested in land. So after Lorenzo de Medici died, the whole country, yeah. all the time, what in Florence went into crisis mode because without Lorenzo de Medici, I don't know, they things went bad without him. So yeah. they started to live off whatever the wealthy families started to live off whatever they had left of their wool, textile, whatever. And then when that ran out, that's when they bought all these. Um, 
abandoned, devastated estates outside of Florence, renovated them, hired the help to make the wine, and then then what they would do is um, sell the wine, ship the wine back to Florence, and sell them either out of their little wine doors of their personal palazzo, palazzo or they would sell it to traders or sell it wholesale to restaurants or something other like other things like that um but yeah they they basically took over all of the whatever wars were going on because there were a lot and they took over all the estates that were devastated or abandoned outside of florence and that's why the medici has so they have so many freaking villas like all over outside of florence because (laughs) they basically you know had the most money um to do all that but um i'll i'll go back even further because the history of the Bucchetti, which I found, goes back five centuries. Yeah. Um, but they didn't have um, an actual name until, like, the 1970s, which is when, like, they called, well, not the 1970s, they called it Bucchetti, but they had all these other names as the years went on in the 1500s and stuff. They had all these other names that they came up with. But they started with names like um, counters where wine flats are handed over, but in Italian, of course. <laughs> Holes for selling Tebbiano. And I was going to look in my Italian. Um, <laughs> That's brilliant. Like Sportello di Vino. <laughs> like, I thought it was hilarious. I'm like, okay, these are, they're very, they're very, um, guys, uh, Italians are very um, specific when it comes to um, naming things because they don't beat around the bush on how they name things. So, um, but yeah, so I was trying to find where, what is it called in, in, uh, I can't find this here. Yeah. Sanza del vino che si vende. It's like... Forame per vendere il tribiano. Basically, holes for, but very um, you know, old Italian, like very yeah, Italian. um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, so they were yeah. We already said this. Okay, at the end of the 1700s, the way of selling wine at its height because of the Grand Duke Pietro Leopoldo, he yeah, realized, um, that word the retail sale of wine allowing owners to sell the product in flats tax-free even from the sites other than the palazzo of residence these windows were risky too because people could spy on each other because they they were at street level so think about those times in the 1700s when we're like who's cheating on who who's stealing my money like so sexy. Um, that's so um, italian <laughs> Very risky for them to have those those doors, but also probably helpful for some of the wealthier families. And then <laughs> at the end of the 1800s, the city of Florence became depopulated, and it became impossible yeah. to buy bottled wine. And most of the wine doors were walled up at this time and abandoned because everyone's like, "Oh, I'm just going to buy bottled wine." And then the estate owners started to sell their product from from the farm or from a wine shop. So then that became like going to the vineyard, um, having the wine tastings at the vineyard, which I think it's more authentic. I don't know about you, but obviously back then you had a horse or a donkey maybe, or you had nothing. So you could not get to the vineyard 
<laughs> yeah. Wine tastings. like wine tastings. Yeah. Lots yeah. of people with the money. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, what other, did you find any other um, historical piece? With... Well, I was thinking, because now you we go a little bit back, but obviously in the 1600s, I think it was 1630, uh, when when the plague was going around, oh yeah, um, what I kind of found funny was that many vendors started using the the bouquette to sell their products, like not just wine but other products, oh. and they did this so that they would could accept money inside a little metal ball, and then when people put the money in, they would spray it with vinegar oh. to disinfect it. <laughs> to try and limit the spread of the contagion and i thought that was quite cool because now with the recent pandemic that's exactly what happened people did ex it was like a step and repeat they're like oh this is like hole right here i could use as a weird takeaway yeah, and we, that's what i saw in in my book too because like the famous uh gelateria vivoli they yes were, they were selling um the gelato from those doors there at the picture bank. So funny. Because you can see like you can see them like just handing yeah. Just tough ones. You can see it. <laughs> it's so cool. Oh, Here you go. <laughs> you know you see the arch, guys you can't see this. The arch of the wine door and you see a little Italian man inside with his mask on and a little hat and he's handing over the case of gelato. It's so cute. And then in the other pictures I have of like an apple spritz and then a glass of wine and then also like a, a takeout bag like for for carryout. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it kind of worked out for some of the places after um, the pandemic this time because of, you know, they stayed away from each other. They had the mask, they had the wall, they had, you know, they didn't have a, a, as much uh, time to get you know con contract anything because you know even though I'm, I'm sure that was later on in the pandemic for italy i don't know i don't know exactly when they well actually no they say in the book when they started they, they started quite early on because I, I was actually reading about a um a place a restaurant that opened up i think it was called bebe yeah that's exactly oh, bebe. Yeah. 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 yeah that restaurant yeah yeah may 2020 they started Exactly, it was quite early on because they had they were only open for about six months. Yeah, and then the pandemic went over to Italy. Yeah, and um realized that they had that little, you know, buchetta, uh -huh. buco there, and yeah. they're like, okay, well, this is how we're gonna save our business because they obviously had just invested so much money into opening up this business and the pandemic hit, which happened to so many people, and I think it's really cool that Florence or Tuscany. Because I think it's mostly in Florence. I only read about the Bouquette being in Pistoia. I don't think it's outside of Tuscany. I'm not sure. There's some um, in Siena. In Siena. In Siena, there's Cartaldo, um, Castel Fiorentino, Calenzano, Borgo San Lorenzo, Bagno Ripoli, uh, Colle Valdelsa, Fiesole, there's a whole bunch, La Sperafina, Luca. There's a ton, but they're not um, obviously in working order. There, a lot of them are are cemented over. Um, I love seeing. I'm sure you saw pictures. I love seeing them um, 
as like uh as like the um the buzzers. Yeah. <laughs> like in, if you haven't been to Florence or in Italy and you haven't been walked up to a a a residential house, um what what you'll see is as a buzzer with everybody's name and you buzz just like any other building in the world, I guess. But it's cool to see it in this arched um space. Um, and there's a whole bunch of pictures in here, like uh, artists have created artwork over it. Um, some of them have been, you know, uh, like I said, completely cemented over. Some of them still have the grates, but they've actually just become windows. So they've opened it up, like, yeah. like with reconstruction and all the other stuff. But mostly, um, most of these that are outside of Florence. Oh, and there's one, Via del Trebbio. This is the one I think I have a picture of too, that has the word vino in stone underneath. I just think it's like, I just, it's the most beautiful one. And I, I would show it to you, but it's very, very tiny. But it just looks <laughs> no. so pretty. I'm like, oh my God. It's just like, and I think I probably had that on my phone, like, like as a screensaver or something. Like, it's one oh i think i think they're already beautiful and they're just something that you can easily walk past without really knowing about it um you know like my my grandparents they would always tell me oh you just walk past you give them your money and then you get a glass of wine and that's what they remembered about the story but it was interesting to find out that it was actually a fiasco you know it was like a, a glass bottle of some kind flask yeah um that you would you would purchase it wasn't just like a random glass of of wine, which always seemed a bit strange to me. Yeah. Well, if <laughs> um, I lived back then, I probably would be just fine. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. I would have easily drank that on the street. <laughs> I think you should definitely add this to the the retreats. <laughs> do a day of going to the wine doors, I, and I, then I, go for a wine tasting. I would love to do that. I think it's a very unique. Um, and I've never actually I've seen them, but I've never seen them open. I, I, I maybe like one time I was at maybe a restaurant and they had opened it, but just for show, like there, nobody was like, it might've been on um, Via Delle Belle Donne, because I think, mm -hmm. I, was, I don't know if I was with you or somebody else, but it was open because you can see inside the restaurant, but I don't think they were serving anything outside of it. But um, I know some places still are doing it, like just for like show, like selling wine out of the wine doors. Um, I don't know what places, but I plan on like searching that. We should do that the next time we come to Florence. I think so. I mean, why not? Because I can't remember the names of the places, but there are quite a few, at least restaurants that have them open and you can use them, yeah. which is really awesome. And I think it creates an interesting experience for people and you kind of get to imagine what life was like, you know, back in like the 17th century, 18th century. Yeah. probably like really miserable you got your stale bit of bread and you're like i'm gonna get me some wine i'm gonna go home i'm gonna forget about my troubles yeah. <laughs> like, i just imagine that yeah, great i think it's a great experience to even like yeah because i always whenever i was whenever i was living in italy and florence i always imagined as i was walking on the street or riding my bike from poggio imperiale down through porto romana i would be like God, always imagining like what was happening here was this even here like at this time or in Dante's time like I would always imagine like what's the, what would ha happen on the street 
as I'm walking down the street or as I'm meeting you for dinner, like what, what was going on at night in Florence, in Dante's Florence? Right? Because you, you like, you just walk through the city center, you walk past Dante's house yeah. and these bouquette, you know, just imagining like, did he stop by? Did he yeah. do this? You know, like, was this part of his routine? It's a really weird experience to have, you know, because you're not just learning a bit about history when you're there. You actually get to go and stand where these people stood. Totally. And it's like, this is insane. <laughs> it's like, you yeah. know, the man she walked these streets. <laughs> what would I be wearing? Would I be would I be wearing like noble garb? Would I be a peasant? Will I would I be a farmer? Like what 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 would be happening? I don't know. I think yeah, I love I love that's why I think I love living in Florence because there's just so much history and so much um and on every street there's just something to there's some story that happened. You know, you and and that's why like there's that tour that I was gonna give this past retreat like of all these like um, hidden things that you not normally a, a a guided tour guide is gonna give a group of 30 40 people like there's just so many cool things and it's so hard to do this on a podcast because I'll be like I thought about doing a podcast episode of talking about all these really cool things that happened um, well not all cool but interesting <laughs> things that happened in some of the piazzas and some of the squares and some of the churches there's things on the churches that are like hidden or hidden messages for people but it's kind of hard to do that. so it's more better in person <laughs> agree like when we were there um, <laughs> i guess the other other thing i found I, I i got a part in this book that um that I about the wine doors it talks about the wine trade in medieval Florence so yes um the the vintners traders and sellers were official suppliers who had their own guild which I did not know this and I thought I studied all the guilds of Florence but in 1288 is when they established this guild uh the Arte de Venatari I think that's how you pronounce it um yeah and then there was, um, oh yeah, the the famous restaurant. You you know this one, I Latini. Yes. They, yes. Yes. They have this the 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 guild of the Vinatari on their door. So there's like a a, a on the glass. So and they still have. Yes. Yeah, so they, they still have, have the guilds in Sinia. Yeah. So they have a wine door. So when you're waiting, because I, in I Latini. For those of you that don't know this restaurant, it's a very famous restaurant. It's been around for a really long time, and it's so hard to get in to eat. I don't think I've ever been eaten there, to be honest. I haven't. I could never get in. Um, but while you wait, they open the wine door, and you can have a glass of wine. That's awesome. And that's smart. Yeah, Good marketing. <laughs> yeah, you can keep people around because they just want another glass of wine. Um, so this guild was open um, not only to innkeepers and taverners, basically um, owners of bars, mm -hmm. and but anyone that sold wine for almost, for most of the year or just for one season. So you could be a part of this guild for those two reasons. Only. And then, oh yeah, as we talked about this earlier, as, as early as the 14th century, members of the leading Florentine families dedicated themselves to wine production like the Antignoris and the Ricasolis. Um, they, oh, 
the bylaws of this guild controlled the opening hours of taverns, the price of the barrels, jars, mugs, and the minimum distance a tavern could be open from churches, tabernacles, convents, and prohibited gambling. Interesting. Yeah. It banned the sale of salty. This is this is something that wouldn't go right now. Salty, it banned the sale of salty foods in places where wine was poured by the glass, as it was an artificial stimulant of thirst and considered fraud. <laughs> well, That's amazing. Well, that is so amazing. Like, it didn't tell me what they ate then. What did they eat at these places? Are they just drinking? I couldn't imagine. Maybe. <laughs> did you eat anything about this? I didn't know anything about this, but I find it fascinating because you go to pretty much any bar today and they will serve you all the salty snacks. Yeah. <laughs> they give you everything. I mean, these are filled with salt. Like, with the so much salt. Garlic and everything. Oh my God. So I thought that was hilarious. Um, that is hilarious. And I like the fact that they're like, oh no, it's fraud. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's an interesting concept. Can you imagine, like, if the, I mean, this is no no offense to any of the Indian like sellers of all. You know how there's all those Indian shops all over Florence that sell wine and beer like late at night. Okay, so if they like, because yeah. like, they would not be able to be there <gasps> because where this consider this guild being part of this guild and these bylaws being compliant as being a seller of wine. You could not be within so many. It didn't say how how the distance, the minimum, the distance exactly, but oh, I just think that's just hilarious because churches drink a lot of wine, like a lot. And still do. And did you think? <laughs> did you read anything about the Spedale delle Rocente, the the church, the church, the orphanage? The orphanage? No, I did not actually, because um, I figured you'd tell me about all of this interesting stuff. I I read a little bit more about more recent history, my history, more recent um um things that were happening there. So tell us, tell us all about uh, is this orphanage? I mean, were they making the kids make the wine? Like, what was the deal? Yes. <laughs> you're old enough to do something with your hands you're old enough to work oh my god so they, old italian proverb so they <laughs> this is what's interesting okay so from 1547 the spedale degli innocenti of course okay it, so those of you that don't know what that means it, it basically is hospital of the innocent right of the innocent yes. okay that's what it translates to um <laughs> List their seller records list the purchase of marked half ports and funnels for selling wine and flats alongside alongside arrival of large numbers of barrels of wine and vinegar, the latter used to disinfect at the time, which we talked about with the play, yes. From the Chianti and Belsa farms. Um, we may find it odd that a charity set up to help abandoned children because it was it was an orphanage. And this was this um, orphanage slash hospital slash vineyard. <laughs> um, would there's a, there's a place again? It's very better. It's much better if you're with me in person. 
but there is a part of this of this um, orphanage where people that could not take care of a a child, a newborn, would place the baby on this wheel, and they would knock or something. Yeah. And they the baby baby would be wheeled around, and it would open on the other side, and then the the nuns and the the suore, the nuns would take the baby and then be part of the orphanage, basically for the yeah. Which again, I was boggled. Totally, totally boggled by this. I couldn't believe it. I had no idea. That's amazing. Because I knew about the children being dropped off in the weird wheel. Yeah, the wheel, like, wheel thing. Yes. <laughs> the children that can no longer be taken care of. Yeah. yeah. It's very, um, yeah. So, so fascinating. The, the, okay, so this is what it says. Okay, so. Yes, it's odd that it's a charity that was helped was set up to help the abandoned children, people that could not take care of the children, um, into a production and trade of wine. And because these orphanages had all these children, they actually figured out, or they thought, that the, the wine, this is a nutritious, nutritious beverage. It was an essential part of the diet of nearly 200 adults and children who lived and worked there. So it was stored in the cellars in large amounts. I probably was living there in my past life. <laughs> I thought I was going to be around wine. They produced more wine than necessary, selling it in surplus, for, which was very profitable and an intelligent way to exploit the Spadalli and Ocente real estate, which grew continuously thanks to benefactor bequests, which I'm guessing just a lot of rich people gave them money. The importance of wine as a commodity at the time is proved by the decision taken in 1567 to plant a vineyard within the orphanage walls. There was a vineyard inside there. Now I want to go inside. Me too. I don't know if you can go inside. Um, I've never seen it open to the public anyway. I think, so. I think it's actually still a charity from what I remember, but I don't know if you could actually just walk in. Um, hmm. Yeah, so they, yeah, so they planted this vineyard. And also, yeah, and the children then help take care of the vineyard. That's amazing. That's that's that actually blows my mind a little bit. Like my grandmother could have been one of those kids because she she was um, in a convent until she was eight years old. Really? Um, yeah, family of thirteen children. Oh. You know, wartime Italy sure. and post-war Italy. That not a good time. And some of the younger children younger ones they were sent to live with other families yeah. um but the first family that she lived with weren't taking care of her so then she was given to a convent and when she was eight years old her family was rich enough well rich that's not the right word they had enough money to take care of her so she went back home with um parents? yeah with her actual parents yeah. and I just, I just wonder, like, she's really into wine, like, more than most people I know. And I wonder she doesn't if know this place she stated, is <laughs> she like a winemaker at the age of five, you know? Like, she knows a lot about wine. <laughs> I think she doesn't know what an orphanage she was in, probably, at, that, at this point. Pardon? She doesn't know what orphanage she was in. And it was um, I could ask her, but she said it was something like the... I can't remember the name that she said, but it wasn't it wasn't in Florence. Um, it was in Lucca, but it's still. I mean, you know, yeah. they're not that far away. 
not that far. Maybe that's she quite fascinating. Like a, you know, hired help came in. The other <laughs> just utilized the the other children. They're not doing anything. I wonder if those children went on to have like to work for the rich people in their vineyards, you know, like when they turned 18 or 16, whatever the age was back then. I wonder if they went on to work in other wineries and stuff with their wine trade skills or did they just live in the street? I wonder. Yeah, I am not sure about that. But the other thing I found out is the children actually were sent out to then sell the wine on the street. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm laughing, but it I know it's terrible, but it's also kind of just... I if there weren't laws in place today, I could imagine many Italians doing that with their children. You know, be like, okay, you're home from school. It's time for you to do your, like, wine route. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Yeah, so they they went always in the direction of the city palace. That's what it says. So like they were maybe ending mm. the city palace or Palazzo Vizzi, and then you know giving the rest of the wine to the Medici. Who knows? I don't know. It doesn't say who they gave it to, but all of the like I said, all of the wine, all the vineyard wine that came in to be processed in the cellar were from the Chianti, which was like we talked about before the first major region of wine making in the 16th century is what I remember what it was said last time um and the Valdelta area um but yeah it's that's really fascinating I think there's so much in every little detail that one researches there's so much like history there you know um just thinking about these these buquete, you know, with how they've changed the story, how they've adapted to being there during the plague, during the pandemic, how they helped people make their fortune back and um, just kind of always being a part of of the story in a way. Like we were talking about the vin vino sfuso mm -hmm. in the last episode. And in many ways, I feel like that's a modern version of the buquete, you know, like that yeah. idea of going and fet fetching your bottle of water, your artisanal water. Yeah, well, it's water for I mean, them. wine. <laughs> it was nutritious, delicious, and filled all the open children's bellies full of wine. Yeah. Like, at least they got to partake in what they made. You know, it wasn't just like a... I mean, that's another thing I was thinking about, too. Like, I wonder if it was rewarding for them. Because, obviously, I don't think it was, like, slave, like, working. Because I don't... That's not what was depicted here in this book. But hopefully it was something, like you said, hopefully they went on to learn more about winemaking or they went to work for, you know, one of the Frescobaldi or Antignori or, you know... Those people don't need to work at all anymore. Those members of those families. <laughs> They've got plenty of land everywhere. So oh, no, yeah. I could share some of that land. It would be great. That would be great. That would be great. Um, but yeah, I think <laughs> uh, I agree. I think Vino Suzo is like that type of, it's like your own little wine door 
put it in a shop and let yeah. it I'm very cheap because I'm guessing, I'm guessing because I don't know what the cost in the Florin or the type of currency they had back in Dante's Florence or in Medici Florence or in, you know, the Black Plague Florence, um, what kind of currency it was, but I'm guessing it, it couldn't have been that expensive. Because yeah, if everybody was using it. And maybe there were different vintages as the years went on. That's something that's also interesting to me. Like, how did, when did they understand? Um, I know we talked about that a little bit in the last episode, but when did like the prominent families of these um, winemaking families understand that, oh, we need to like age this longer so it's really good and then we can sell it at a higher price? I wonder where that concept finally seeped into there, you know, mm. because that that's not obviously talked about in my research because I was mostly focused on the wine doors, but because I think that's it's interesting that wine nowadays can be very cheap, but it can also be very expensive. So, oh yeah, and I think there's meaning that the wine that is expensive doesn't necessarily mean that it's better than the wine that is inexpensive, meaning inexpensive, not two or three euro, because that wine is probably shit, just going to say. But you don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. Because I, I still have relatives that like Tabernacle, and that's not probably inexpensive anymore because everything's so expensive. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like things like that would cost like 10 euro, 12 euro, like, right now or six eight euro i have like wines that i like that don't cost that much that doesn't mean that I, I think that's hard for americans sometimes to understand because then the california culture and i don't know if this was the same in, when in south africa but there's a lot of different vintages and a different type of winemaking but also i don't know how they classify some of these wines to be hella expensive and then you know some to be like you know 20 bucks 13 bucks you know what i mean well I, i'm sure it has a lot to do with prestige you know apart from the actual quality of the wine because yeah. i mean that definitely like any product the quality will impact impact the price you yeah. know and and the the process of making it yeah. you know like if you're making a wine with grapes that can only be grown on mount vesuvius or some nonsense like that it's going to be pricey because it's probably like a handful of grapes and you get like 20 bottles a year but i'm sure there's prestige that goes into it you know like the the uh, fresco baldi of the world mm -hmm. they've been doing it for so long that they've got the name behind them so even if they made a shit bottle of wine <laughs> they would still be able to sell it because their name's on it yeah. um, it's like chianti as well you know, you see Chianti, you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to buy Chianti because, you know, I've heard about Chianti, Greve di Chianti. But there are Chiantis that just kind of taste like cardboard. It's just how it is. Mm -hmm. Many I like, most I like, but it's also a subjective thing. Some things that, you know, like my father, he loves whiskey, mm. absolutely adores whiskey. I think it tastes, you know, like paraffin. I think it's gross. <laughs> 
And so the wines that he really likes are are really strong wines, typical of South Africa, like we spoke about as well. And in South Africa too, there's all these vintages and people like to um, kind of one-up each other with the best wine. Oh, I found the best wine. But, you know, what I like is a really soft, fruity wine. It's like, I don't, I don't want to be bombarded with tannins when I'm trying to drink. So I think it, I think it's a difficult, it's such a difficult uh, thing to actually understand. I mean, like every product, like I said, it's the how it's processed and all of that. But I, I think prestige is a big part of why it would cost so much. You know, what does the label say? Yeah. You know, like you were saying, Tavernello, for those of you who don't know, Tavernello is a box wine that even I still drink as a daily wine because it's a good table wine. You're not going to get drunk off of it. And it's it's not how can I say there's nothing special about it. Yeah. You know. It's not like spending a good amount. Yeah. Yeah. Just like whatever. I would drink Tavernello all the time when I lived in Italy because it was it was simple. It was a simple wine. Like you said, table wine. And again, I think like you like you pointed out perfectly is the fact that like, yeah, the expensive wines like in California, like in South Africa, like in Italy, the ones that are brand branded as a very high quality type of wine, like Antignori, like Frescobaldi, like um, anything in Montecino, the Brunello, anything that's called Brunello is expensive. It's just the, like you said, the type of process it goes through, how it's maintained, mm. how it's curated in the barrels and all that stuff. So yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, and also, like you said, with the with the, the vines that there's only so many vines, okay, then that's going to be probably more expensive because they can only get so many bottles out. The same thing with Paolo's uh, vineyard in Greve, Alfiero, he has one set of really old vines, and that is what he makes his very special Gran Selezione, and that bottle is like 60 euro. Okay, so that's pretty expensive for... That's, that's pricey. Yeah. <laughs> For Italians and for other people as well. But I mean, normally a bottle of wine can run, a good bottle of wine can run between like five to 10, 15, 20 euro. Um, and then the expensive ones go a little bit higher. But anyway, we're going off on. But um, I don't know, maybe we need to talk about the quality, types of quality of wine in the next episode. What do you think? I don't know. That probably, I think, I think we, we started ourselves on this interesting wine journey. Yeah. Um, so maybe something we could actually talk about is apart from just the quality, but also the different types of wines. Um, you know, I think more people are familiar with the French classifications of wine. Mm. And you won't typically see that here in Italy. You'll, you know, you'll see the the Sangiovese, Nero Davola, Brunelli, um, there's so many. Um and kind of explain what that means and where these things come from. So when people are here and they're trying to choose a bottle to go with their dinner, because you will want to, <laughs> uh, kind of give advice. Yeah, or in that in that respect, we can teach you about the types of wine, and then when you're at the vineyard, you can one up the winemaker and say, "Hey, I know the vernaccia is X Y Z." And the winemakers are always very impressed when you know something about their type of wine that they're making. Like Lorenzo Casalucci, he 
loves to be stumped. Like he was like, he's an amazing, amazing storyteller, but he is like hilarious when somebody's like, well, I heard that this is like, ah, yes, but did you know in Italy, blah, blah, blah. And he goes on. So those types of things, I think, yes, I think we should. I think we should, I don't know what we're going to call the episode, but we'll think about it. But this was a fun um, little chat. And I feel yeah. like we kind of went back in time. And I feel like we were, you know, walking amongst the, 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 the wine guild. The wine guild. I think it would be great to talk about it. I didn't know there was a wine. I mean, I knew about the guilds, but I didn't know there was a wine guild. And it seems obvious. We should do that in another <laughs> episode. Figure out if there's any other information out there about the wine guild. I don't know. It's just interesting. There's probably other stories that, like, I, there's so many things that I have, like, in my mind that I want to talk about in this podcast. There's one other thing that I don't know where and when I'm going to find the actual historical background. Again, another topic. But of my favorite church in Florence, Santi Apostoli, there's no, there's no book. I've went to every library, every religious library in Florence and asked them about Santi Apostoli, I'm bored of Santi Apostoli. Is there a book? Is there a history book written about it? Blah, blah, blah. Everyone's like, nope, nope, nope. There's got to be something written about this. Like, so if I ever find any more information on it, I want to talk more about it because all I know is what I know. But it's always interesting when you get that, that really in-depth knowledge on something, especially. That's true. We might have to be the one to write the book. It's so, because it's such a, how can I say it's an out of the way kind of church you know it's not something that you'll stumble upon you really have to find it and it's really beautiful small church with a lot of interesting things inside Mm -hmm. um so yeah maybe that can be a one of the follow-ups after after we're done with the wine aspect of things we can start talking about the lesser known churches of florence that's also great because there's so many stories beyond like the big Duomo and Santa Croce and Santa Maria Novella like there's so many there's so many tiny churches that have their own unique and special story um that I think yeah I think maybe give me an idea maybe I should write the book about Santa Apostoli why not I'm gonna go sit with all the priests that are there and have a little chat and see if they can bring me up the big huge books of like the history of Santa Apostoli—it's <laughs> all dusty and like everything. Uh, I have it living in my mind. Nobody else is seeing it, but it's—it's uh, it's beautiful. Anyway, well, this episode was very successful. I hope it's you fun. guys enjoyed it. Yes. Before we sign off, um, so I read about the wine doors. Oh. I read that there were a hundred and eighty so far discovered. Did you find that as well? Because obviously they haven't discovered all of them yet um yeah well there's more to be discovered but i was interesting interested to hear what you read so this book says and this is just not in florence this is the association that created this book um they have found they've confirmed the presence of 280 detectives it's 280 okay nice um yes there are, That's a lot. The city alone, awesome. there are 178 wine window, wine windows. 
with 152 in the historic center, 26 outside the ancient walls, 10 have been removed, but we have traces of them thanks to period photographs, testimonials, and buildings. Blah, blah. Another 34 buquete are scattered throughout the province of Florence, for the most part nearly stately homes, mansions, or farms where the wine was made. Um, so there are now more than 100 confirmed traces of wine winners across the region, exclu excluding the city of Florence with 20 in the province of Siena, 17 in Pistoia, 12 in Arezzo, 9 in Pisa, and 6 in Prato. Nice. That's a lot. But like, that is a lot. Like they said, you know, can't always pitch find them because they've either been covered up or they've been, um, you know, probably turned into something else that you're not going to notice. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think I think it's fantastic, and I think it would be an awesome thing to add to the retreat tour. You know, like I love the idea that you want to show people the different um different things in florence you know what you typically are not going to go and see because everyone's obviously you're going to see the duomo the galleria yeah well all the galerias there's so many um but having a look at you know these these different churches and the different places that are not necessarily well known and i know the the wine doors after the pandemic made a big uh comeback but they're still not as well known and um I really like this topic and I look forward to actually talking about the different wines, the qualities and, you know, the fun other tips that we're going to discover in our research for the next episode. Awesome. Yeah. So stay tuned, guys. We're going to come with another episode next week or the week after, wherever we are. We've recorded two this week. So <laughs> um, thank you, Julia. This is fabulous. Um, so, buongiorno, buonasera, buonanotte, wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this, and thank you for listening, and I will see you soon. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, Julia. Ciao. <laughs> I am beyond grateful for you listening to my podcast right now. I am so excited to share my journey of living abroad and all my stories of Florence and Italy and all the places in between that I've visited. If this has reached you in any way and you would like to continue, please subscribe now. Also, go check out my website, trulyitaly.tours, for all my travel experiences. Ci si vede. Ciao.